following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Let me pray. Indeed, Lord, all glory and honor is due to You. There is no good thing that has come to us that has not come from Your hand. Stand in awe yet again of the words of the song that we sang a few minutes ago. No guilt in life. No guilt in life. My goodness, how can that be? But you have made it so. You are amazing. You are truly glorious. There's no wonder that that your servant Paul says that 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 all of your all of your saving work in us is to the praise of your glorious grace. So this morning would you enable us would you cause us to look deeply into your word and to draw out rich food, would you cause us this morning to, to feast upon You, Lord Jesus? Would you cause us to, to, get a, to get a taste of the feast, the true feast that is to come? You, you are marvelous. You are so gracious in Your goals for us. But You desire for us to eat and drink with You at Your table in Your kingdom to share all that is Yours with us for our internal enjoyment. So I, I pray this morning, let us feast a bit upon these truths. And I pray, would you enable me, Lord, to be a faithful waiter at the table, to, to serve what you would have for us clearly? Would you, would you organize my thoughts? And would you show us Christ? For his glory and our good, I pray. Amen. So I draw your attention this morning to Luke 22. Please turn there with me, if you would, to Luke 22. I take us to this passage this morning because of the strong connections to the truths that we've heard in the last three weeks in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Uh, this is a, in some ways, a dark chapter. Just like the chapters that we've been looking at the last few weeks. It is, it is horrific in the betrayal that we will observe, not by one man, but by two. Like Saul and David, we'll see two men who betray God to his face. They both despise him, yet only one will experience eternal destruction. The other, well, the other will be restored to lead God's people. And I pray that, that as we as we go through this chapter, that, that 
we will see through the darkness to a glorious, marvelous source of light. Marvelous, marvelous source of hope. The marvelous source of all of our assurance in this life. I hope we will see it and I pray that God would give us eyes to see it. Nothing less than the secret source of our ultimate triumph over all evil is found before us today. God's words before us today. So, as we look at Luke 22, we need to understand that it is uh, in the context of Luke's overall purpose to write an orderly account of the events surrounding the life of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, to his friend Theophilus. And he begins the, the ministry of Jesus back in chapter 4 with Jesus' temptation in the desert. And that ends with chapter 4, verse 13, and this sentence. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. That opportune time arrives in chapter 22. Verse 1, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. This is the Passover. The Passover is the feast that replayed God's passing over the Jews in Egypt on the night before their exodus. All the firstborn of Egypt were slain except those who took the blood of the lamb and painted their doorposts with it. And God's wrath passed over them because they were covered by the blood of the lamb. This entire chapter can be described as the preparation of the Passover lamb, the Passover lamb. The Passover is mentioned repeatedly in the first half of the chapter. And that's meant to, to frame for us how we understand the second half of the chapter, especially for Luke's friend Theophilus, who may not have heard this story before, unlike all of us. The Passover lamb, Jesus, is being prepared for the sacrifice. That's what's happening here. So the preparations really begin in verse 2. The, the minds of the chief priests and scribes are already set. It's not a matter of if, but how. It's not a matter of if, but when. They feared the people, Luke records. And as David shows us, there is no bounds to what a man will do when he forgets God in order to protect himself. It's exactly what the scribes and religious leaders are doing here. So I'm going to walk us through chapter 22. It's a, it's a long chapter. I'm going to read several sections, not every section. And then uh, when I'm through, we're going to circle back and really hover over just one or two verses. So let's move on to verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. So Satan seizes this opportune time and enters Judas, one of the disciples. He, he offers his services to the religious leaders, and they were glad. <laughs> so they paid him. And he waited for a time when the crowds weren't around, like some midnight political disappearance in Stalinist Russia. So we move on to, to verse 14. After the disciples have assembled the Passover meal in verses 7 through 13, we read, And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. 
And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was regarded, was to be regarded as the greatest. Jesus earnestly desired to eat this Passover with the disciples because he wanted them to understand what his cross would mean. This Passover is the Passover. All other Passovers were, were pointing forward to this one, where his, his body would be broken and his blood would be poured out for them, for us. He is the Lamb who would be slain to cover their sins and to free them from their bondage, their bondage to themselves that is clearly on display here. It is God who is doing this. It is God who is setting up a new covenant with His people. It is God's promise that's being enacted here, sealed with the blood of His own Son. And yet, even still, Jesus gives His betrayer a chance to repent. Jesus shows the grotesqueness of this betrayal by noting that they're sharing the same table. But then Luke reminds us in verse 22 that in all of this, God is the prime mover. God is the one arranging all of this. God is the one who is acting. Yes, Judas is responsible for his actions, but God is the one who has determined to sacrifice his own son. The scribes and the Pharisees, they are responsible for their own actions, for their own deeds, but God is sovereignly employing them to prepare the lamb for sacrifice. He is employing this horrible betrayal to bring salvation to all the world Judas is God's chosen sacrifice to bring the lamb to sacrifice. Or, excuse me, his chosen instrument to bring the lamb to sacrifice. So to the, the disciples, they begin to interrogate each other in verse 23, trying to figure out who's the culprit, skipping over what Jesus just said in verse 22, that it's actually God determining all these things. And then the questioning turns into posturing about who should be regarded as the greatest by the others. What? Why would you ask me? I'm the greatest. No, I am. Why would you ask me this question? How dare you even imply that I would even betray the Lord? They're all too human. But Jesus replies in verse 25, And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. There is now only one benefactor, only one source of security, only one source of satisfaction and protection and provision. And He has come, not as the greatest, but as the servant of all. So must they. But Jesus also reminds them of why He came. Why is He offering Himself up? Not just to humble them, but to save a people and to gather them to Himself that one day they might eat and drink and feast before Him at His table and enjoy Him forever. To reign with Him forever. He will be glorified forever as they enjoy Him forever. But not yet. Not yet. They had stayed with him up until this point through all of his trials. They had not run. But an even greater trial is coming. Verse 31. Jesus warns. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. 
Like Satan with Job, Satan is out to de-glorify God by striking his children, by striking his servants. The you here in verse 31 is plural. Satan demanded to have you, all of you, disciples. To cause their faith to eclipse, to cause them to completely fall away. And it is no coincidence that Jesus uses Peter's pre-Christ name, Simon, Simon, Simon. You are about to go through a great trial and you are about to return to your old man, to the old nature before you found me. He is about to be tested and tempted to give up. So Jesus prays for him and we will return to this prayer in a moment. But but note for now that the you in verse 32 is no longer plural. It's singular. Satan has sought to sift you disciples, but... Jesus says, I have prayed for you, Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Was Jesus' prayer answered? We'll come back to that. Satan has demanded to sift the disciples and Jesus prays for Peter that his faith may not go into total eclipse. And Peter is his usual self-confident self. He will not leave the Lord Yet Luke is the only gospel writer to note that Jesus even tells Peter the exact way in which he will disown him. That he will say that he doesn't even know him. So then we move on to verse 39. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer... He came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The cup that Jesus mentions is the cup of God's wrath for sin. Jesus is even now taking it upon himself. And the Father even now pulls away from the Son. Jesus prays. But the doors of heaven are shut. Jesus prays and he hears nothing but awful silence. Terrible silence. The wrath of God is already being poured upon him. The opportune time has come and Judas finally pulls the trigger. In verses 47 through 53. Then verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. (laughs) Then Jesus is mocked, struck, blasphemed, Convicted to death for being the Son of God. 
The disciples are scattered, all in hiding. The betrayals are complete. The sacrifice for the Passover is prepared. And Peter wept bitterly. Surely that look would not leave him the rest of his days. Peter, after being told exactly what would happen, after strongly affirming his loyalty, after just hearing that the trial would be beyond any other, after, after being told by Jesus that his own body and blood would be offered up for him, Peter denies Jesus and he weeps bitterly. There, there is something operating here in Peter that is operating in each and every person in this passage, save Jesus. It is operating in the chief priests as they fear the people and look to kill the source of the fear. It is operating in, the, in Judas who betrays for money. It is operating in the disciples who so blithely hop, skip, and jump from this discussion about Jesus pouring out Himself to, to is it you? Is it you? To, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And it is operating in Peter who when told exactly how he would deny Jesus, does just that anyway. Yes, there is operating here the sovereignty of God in every last detail. And in everyone else, a vicious lust for self. A vicious lust for self from which springs every murder, betrayal, callousness, malice, self-justification, assault, blaspheming, lies, and cruel violence the world has ever seen. From this vicious lust for self is the source of all crimes, all wars, all holocausts, all cruelness. Satan aims to de-glorify God through his creation. And he's got a lot of material to work with. So this, this is not just about the players on this stage, on this one night in Jerusalem. They reflect something clearly about us, about you and I. This is in all of us. All of us. You don't believe me? Have you ever wept bitterly over a sin? Have you ever heard it preached against on Sunday? Read about it on your Bible on Monday? Heard Piper over the radio preach about it on Wednesday? And come Thursday, you did exactly that. And you wept bitterly. Oh, you wept Yes, this is operating in you as well as the disciples, as well as the scribes and Pharisees. All of us. None of us are immune from it. So which, with, with, with such a, a dark capacity within each one of us, with such a vicious lust for self, with such betrayals of God and man, what hope is there for us? What hope is there for us to endure Oh, the humbling and yet utterly hopeful truth is that the hope does not reside with us. It doesn't reside with us ginning up more faith or in determining to do better. It resides with what God is determined to do. Our hope lies in verse 32 in Jesus' prayer for Peter as an example for, of Jesus' keeping prayers for us. Our hope does not lie in ourselves, but in His firm commitment to glorify Himself by keeping His promises, His covenant that He has cut for us to save us. His promise that He sealed with the blood of His own Son. That is where He is, that is where He is clearly glorified on the earth in His sovereign grace to us. And He will see it through to the end. God is very interested in His own glory. And He is so interested that He will do everything, everything it takes to keep His promises to us, to save us. To save us. And so in His firm commitment to glorify Himself and save us, He keeps us. He keeps us. So to put it simply, Peter would return. We'll read about that. At the end of John, Peter would return. And he would return because Jesus prayed to the Father for Peter to return. We return 
because Jesus graciously prays to the Father to keep us. And the Father says yes, and we return. We are kept by the prayers of Jesus. So I want to break this up this morning into two points. Two points, and the first one is this, that God eagerly desires, God eagerly desires to glorify himself by keeping his covenant with us, and so he keeps us to the end. God eagerly desires to glorify himself by keeping his covenant with us, and so he keeps us to the end. I draw this from the the larger context and from verse 32. From the larger context, as I've I've already said, one thing is very clear. We are all in bondage to this, this vicious lust for self. We don't need renovation. We need redemption. We don't need to change our circumstances. We don't need to try harder. We need to be bought out of our slavery. That's what this Passover is all about. That's what God sending His Son us rules to try harder and to obey better. It is about purchasing us out with His own blood, out of our own slavery. This lust for self runs so deep and so pervasive, we don't need a change of techniques or circumstances. We need to be saved. And we can't save ourselves. Only God can do it, and only God will do it. So God acts on His own volition and He sends His Son. And through the blood of His Son, He cuts this new covenant with us. A covenant that He makes all by Himself. It is all on God. It is all on Him. A covenant to save us. And God is eager, eager to pursue His glory. That is a good thing. That is a good thing for him to pursue his glory because he is the source of all good in the universe. And so it is good, it is good, it is good for us, for God to pursue his own glory. Because as he pursues his own glory, we get everything. We get the thing that we are searching for in every sin and in every turn and every betrayal against God. We get satisfaction forever, joy, peace, everything that we are looking for by God pursuing his own glory. By God saving us and keeping us. He is eager to do this. So because He is eager to glorify Himself, He is eager to see His faithfulness put on display before all the world. And He does that by keeping His promises to us. By saving us to the very end. By keeping us. So He sends His Son... And on this Passover, He will seal His promise with His blood to save us. But we need to be saved to the end. So God provides everything that we need to be saved to the end. He does not save us and then say, now go earn this. Now go do it yourself, Jed. What a hopeless state that would be. How, how bad would I botch that? He will be the one who does it from start to finish. And it is how He does this that is so encouraging. And that should give us so much confidence, not in ourselves, but in Him, in His, in His saving work to us. We see this in verse 32. It is this prayer that kept Peter from running completely away in shame and self-loathing. Yes, Peter's sin was great, but it was Jesus' prayer that would prevail. It was because of Jesus' prayer that Peter's faith did not eclipse. Jesus doesn't pray for sinlessness. He prays for Peter's faith to not fail. And we should note something else in Jesus' words. It's, It's the confidence with which he prays. He says, I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, and when you have returned, not if, but when. Jesus prays this way because He is God and He asks everything according to the Father's will. John 5. He is the perfect Son with the perfect Father and whatever He asks for, He gets. (laughs) 
Whatever he asks for, the Father says, yes. Always. Forever. Always. And the Father is always able to follow through on that yes. With every yes, he commissions the Spirit to affect that, to do it. God is faithful. But how does this apply to us? Well, I, I, I pull this from, from a couple different places. First, that, that Luke is the only gospel writer to include verses 31 and 32 in his narrative. And he, he does this to provide us with an example of the success of Jesus' prayers. But not only that, we can look to John 17 where, where Jesus prays for the disciples and he prays for you and me. There, Jesus prays with that same confidence in the Father that He would grant us joy and keep us and sanctify us and finally bring us to that place where He is going to enjoy Him forever. Jesus prays for us all for our being kept from start to finish and everywhere in between. But then there is the unique way that Luke ends his gospel. Matthew ends with the Great Commission, Mark probably the resurrection, John with Peter's restoration, but Luke ends with the ascension. And we, we rightly give great emphasis to the cross and the resurrection. But the, the ascension communicates something to us marvelous, something reassuring, something that should give us hope and rest now, today. Luke ends with the ascension to rightly emphasize something to us, something precious and strong. And we read about it in Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, verse 25, which tells us, He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, through Jesus, that is, since He always lives to make intercession for them. For you, Christian. Did you hear that? Jesus always lives always lives to make intercession for us, to save us, to keep us, to keep us to the other uttermost. <clears throat> to make intercession means to earnestly plead and pray on behalf of someone else. Jesus right now always lives to earnestly plead and pray for you, Christian, that you would be kept that you would continue to believe, that you would persevere, that you would persevere to the end, that your faith may not fail. And, and so that you would receive the greatest good in the universe, to see God face to face, to see Him face to face, and to have every hope fulfilled, to be filled with true abiding joy forever. Wonderful truth. And he prays to keep us step by step. So Peter returned because Christ prayed for him that his faith would not fail. When you and I return, it is because Christ Jesus is praying for us that our faith may not fail. Think about that word always. Let's let that run for a second. When you are filled with physical pain or illness. And that pain, I, I know there's some in our congregation who suffer from back problems. And sometimes with back problems, the pain can become so pervasive that you can't even think. And the medicine doesn't help. And, and you can't even put coherent thoughts together at some point. And you wonder, when is this going to end? And, and you try to pray and you can't. And, and, and it says, it's those sorrow upon sorrow. And, and you wonder, is this God's judgment upon me? Because I, I can't even think right now. And I can't even put two thoughts together to even form a coherent prayer to, to express to Him. If, if you are in this situation today, or, or if you are at home watching on the video, I, I just want to say to you that the truth here, He always, always lives to intercede for you. Even when you can't even think of Him, He Christian is thinking of you. He is thinking of you even when your sin has blinded your own, your own spirit towards Him. 
Even, even when all is dark and you cannot see and you can't even think about him, all you can do is hide. He is thinking of you. And he is not only just thinking of you, he is praying for you. Father, keep this one. And the father says, yes. And the spirit says, I will make it so, father. I will make it so. You, you have a faithful God who has got you. Who always, right now, always lives to intercede for you. What a glorious truth. So when it, when it seems that you are alone, when it seems that all your friends have left you, when, when it seems that your, your sin has caused this, this, this massive rift between you and God, and, and, and perhaps you've confessed it to someone and they are no longer your friend because they can, you confessed it. They were horrified and they left. <laughs> And you are filled with shame. And, and you, and you want to pray. And, and you feel as though the, the doors of heaven are closed to you. Know this, Christian. Know this. The doors of heaven are never closed to you. You are never alone. Why? Jesus has already trod that path. He already stood in your place. He was already made to be completely alone. He was made to hear the terrible silence so that you never will. And though it may feel like silence, know that in heaven there is a constant chatter about you between the Son and the Father. Don't believe your feelings. Believe the Word. Believe the word. And when the preacher says repent and you do, it is because Christ has prayed for you. When, when, when the word begins to jump off the page at you and, and you discover glorious truths that you didn't see it before, that's not because of you. It's because Christ has been praying for you. And the, the Father said yes and the Spirit did it. Or when there is new conviction and, or when you have these out-of-body experiences that, that your affection for your old sin begins to dwindle and you ask yourself, where did that come from? Why, why do I love reading my Bible? That's not you. That's because Christ has been praying for you. And the Father said yes and the Spirit made it so. When you have denied the Savior Himself and you weep bitterly and you... The look upon his face for you haunts you. And yet you somehow have strength to believe the words. And when you return, that is God's grace to you, flowing to you from the throne of God himself. Why? Because of the Savior's prayers for you by name. In your circumstances, for you. For you, and for you, and for you, by name. <laughs> every advance, every turning, every step of endurance, every, every step of hope, every baby step or leap of faith comes from the throne of heaven, comes from the, the prayers of Christ for you right now. <laughs> right now. <clears throat> this is the secret. This is the source. It's not you. You don't have it in you. you. You and I have within us a deep well of self-love that if left unchecked would lead to a black hole that would swallow up the whole world. But it hasn't been left unchecked. By God's grace, the prayers of your ascended Savior prevail. They prevail over you for you. To his glorious grace. So do you see, do you see, Christian, that, that, that every step of faith, every bit of growth, every turning from sin is not a cause for you to view yourself as great, but to view God as great. 
Every, every step, every, every advance is a cause to praise Him for His glorious grace. To the praise of His glorious grace. For even when our prayers receive a no, the, 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 better, the, the better prayers of Christ are advancing. And the Father is saying, yes, yes, yes. Yes, son. Yes, son. Yes, son. For him, for her. And they are prevailing. To the praise of his glorious grace. And yet, only when we see him face to face will we finally on that day comprehend how many times and in how many places and in how many ways have his prayers prevailed over us and for us. And how many times the evil one has demanded to sift us. And he has prayed that our faith may not fail, and it didn't. Not because of us, but by his grace. By his grace. Only then will we see how and why the, 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 the waves of life could never extinguish that flame of faith in you. Only then will we see it to the praise of his glorious grace. On that day, you and I will say with Paul, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. Always, always for your good to the praise of his glorious grace. So in all this, I I hope that you can see how God is also graciously at work to undermine and and to to drain away the, the last remaining holding ponds of pride in you and I. The last, the last holding pond of pride for many of us is to think that our faith is our own, that we created it, that we ginned it up. But it is not so, Christian. It is all by His sovereign grace. His glorious grace. He is graciously at work to humble us. Graciously. Why? It is gracious because He gets more glory. Because then He provides more strength to us. And as He provides more strength to us, as we are strengthened, He is glorified. Because it is clear to us and to all that He is the one giving the strength. The one who gives the strength gets the glory. So God is glorified in us as we are humbled before His grace. So... I don't know about you, but I, I think for me, it, it causes me to, to make one small, almost imperceptible change in my prayers that I think has massive consequences. And sometimes it can't be perceived with the words. It could only be perceived if you were looking into my heart. Not, Lord, help me, but Lord, enable me. Not, Lord, help me, but Lord, cause me. I, I don't mean the precise words, but I know sometimes we pray, Lord, help me, and we mean, Lord, I, I am completely in need of your grace. But sometimes we, you, I, I, I pray with, the, with this element of, of self-reliance mixed in. And I, and I still want to, to add myself into the mix. Um, Jerry Bridges puts it this way. The, the believer doesn't say, Lord, I've got a log that's too heavy for me to lift. If you will take one end, I'll take the other, and we'll lift this log. No. Instead, the believer says, Lord, you must enable me to lift this log. And I truly am lifting it. But I am doing so only because you have given me all the strength to do it. That is the prayer that honors God, that glorifies Him. Now, this kind of prayer does not lead to a do-nothing, wait-on-God entirely life, but a life of action and risk and exhaustion and difficulty and pain and trial and grief and joy and hope and real pleasure, a life of genuine, humble, childlike thanks, a life of rest, Childlike rest sitting at the foot of the Father as He lavishes His strength, His provision upon His beloved ones. 
And it also leads us to see that we don't need a change in our circumstances necessarily. As difficult or as painful or as long-standing as they may be, we need grace. We need grace. He enables us to overcome those circumstances, living as people with a living hope and a God who really does live for me. And He spends His time interceding for me. And He holds out for me a table that one day I will enjoy Him forever at as I eat and drink before Him. That's living hope. That's how we overcome. We don't overcome in and of ourselves. We overcome by this living hope in Him. These truths keep us from doubling down on our sin and our, on our sin and our shame with, with even more sin. But they cause us to, to humbly and expectantly return in need of grace. We begin to see that even I don't actually need this sin to change. I need grace. Now his grace causes me to renounce that brand of ungodliness and to pursue him. But what I really need, what I really need is his grace. And he lavishly gives it to me. And it creates in me a zeal, a zeal to see his grace seen and glorified in others. And that leads us to our second point, which will be more brief. The Spirit uses communities of confession and grace to strengthen and keep us. The Spirit uses communities of confession and grace to strengthen and keep us. I'm talking here about gospel community, the the phrase that we kick around here a lot. Gospel community, not, not a group that might be meeting for lunch after church today per se, but, but the concept, the concept of people who are gathered together and centered upon and feed each other the gospel, who are humbled by His grace, humbled and serve each other with the gospel like children serving at the table. So I get this from the second half of verse 32. And when you have returned, strengthen your brothers. Satan wanted to sift the whole group, and Peter Peter was to be the tool or the means by which God called back the other ten. They all deserted Jesus, and Peter would be the one to remind them of the certain promises of God and the vastness of God's grace. Peter, chief of the disciples and now chief of sinners, would become like the least of them and serve them. He would serve them at the table of God's grace. He would serve them by reminding them of God's grace. They would all have remembered Jesus' words and promises, but God made them dependent upon Peter for the strength to believe. God made them dependent upon Peter for the strength to believe those words and to return in the face of their own failures. Peter, by God's grace, would strengthen their faith faith by reminding them of the grace God showed him. This is the way God often keeps us. The son says, Father, keep him or her. The the, The son says this, the father says yes, and he sends the Spirit. And the Spirit causes something to happen in the community of the gospel. He causes one person to hear the gospel from another person and to finally believe it, to finally believe His grace and to return. We need this. We simply need to be close enough to others to to know them and to be known. Not, Not everyone. You don't need to know everyone in this church. But maybe they're the people in your community group or in a discipleship group. These are good starting points, but... They are only on-ramps to actual gospel community. More is needed. The gospel working in us is needed. There are some times when because of our sin or because of illness or sickness or weakness, our view of the gospel fades and we just are weak. 
and, and, and our, our sight dims and, and the reality of our sin and our failure, or our weaknesses is just too bright. And we confess our sin to God, but, but somehow that's not enough. Somehow we, 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 I don't know, maybe it's because we let ourselves off the hook. You know, we, we say things or we don't say things to God that really push come to shove before another person we would say. We fear men more than God. We know there's more that we would need to say or questions to be answered if we spoke to a friend. So we, we keep it vertical. And we will stay vertical until God enables us to fear Him more than people. To desire Him more than we fear the consequences of obedience. So we need His grace to, to break free. We need to get horizontal. We need others. We, we, we need them. Not for the, the psychological experience of catharsis. That's not what I'm talking about. But to feed our faith with the gospel. I, forgive me if I've shared this story before, but I, I remember um, sitting in the lunchroom of the bank a long time ago. And it was just Bob and I, my friend Bob, and God gave me the courage to confess some of my sins to him. And I remember hearing the words come out and hearing them feel even more sinful than how I had thought them to be prior to that. And then I remember thinking, I'm leaving something out. If I'm really honest here, if I'm really transparent, I'm leaving something out. And that something was this. Like someone pushing a heavy box out of a window, I pushed them out. Bob... I just don't love God. I just don't love God. And I, and I remember that I wanted to clarify, I wanted to back that up with like I should, something like that. Then I thought in that moment, no, that's not actually true, Jed. You just don't love God. It was, it was so shameful to me. I, I was horrified at my own words, and yet they were true as they were coming out. And yet, I, I, I will never, ever forget what happened next. Bob smiled. <laughs> he smiled. I was shocked. <laughs> he smiled, and then he reminded me of the grace of God. He just rehearsed the gospel back to me. I, I, I could have told you everything that he told me, and yet somehow, in that moment, God made me dependent upon Bob in that lunchroom at the bank in order for me to really get God's grace, in order for me to really hear it and receive it. Somehow in that moment, it became more real to me. And I believed it. I believed it. And I was free. It was wonderful. Do you have someone that you can confess to? Sometimes confession is tricky, so it can be wise to disclose to an elder or a pastor first. But if a friend in your community group were to confess to you, what, what would you apply to their wounds? What would you give them? Would you dismiss their grief over sin, calling it just being human? Or would you grieve with them? Would you see it as God sees it? Would you apply the gospel's grace as it has been applied to your own wounds? Would you speak of how freely God has lavished, lavished grace on a sinner like you? Would you point out that God's mercy is actually also meant to lead to repentance? The goal of confession is nothing less than the obedience of faith. We come to believe the gospel, to, to really see it and believe it and obey it and step out in faith, trusting God with all of the consequences. It's a beautiful thing to see someone trusting God like that, confessing, trusting God with the consequences. And the reason why this is so important is because this is where real community is actually built this is where the church is built. Do, do you remember how Peter got his name? Do you remember the, the, the moment where that came from? Who do you think I am? 
disciples. And Peter said, You, Jesus, are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, You're Peter, and upon this rock, upon that confession, upon that truth, that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of the living God, that He is the Christ, the Messiah. He is all our righteousness. He is everything for us. Upon that truth, I will build my church right there. That's where the church is built. That's where real community is built. As we feed each other that truth, that Jesus is your Christ Christian, that he died for you, that his grace was freely given for you. Why? Because he loves you. Why does he love you? Because he loves you. Period. End of sentence. We need to be telling ourselves that. That's the, that's the medicine with which we heal each other with, with our wounds. As James says, confess your sins one to another that you may be healed. And pray for one another, actually, is what he says, that you may be healed. What do we pray for in that moment? We pray, Lord, give this one grace to believe the gospel. To believe the the vastness, the, 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 the height, width, and breadth of your love for him. Give this one grace to believe and he will be healed. I know it. That is where community is built. That is where it happens. Well, church history tells us that Peter died just also as Jesus said that he would. That someone else would take him where he wouldn't want to go and stretch out his arms. That he would be crucified. That he would be hung on a cross. And I wonder, I wonder, Peter, Peter made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> He's a lot like me. <laughs> That's why I like Peter. <laughs> he was a trophy of God's grace. And I, I imagine, I wonder at least, if he was thinking about those failures in that moment and wondering if it was all enough. And I, and I wonder if these words came back into his mind. Yet again, as he was being hung on that cross. And when you return, (laughs) Peter, I have prayed for you. And when you return, and he could look at that cross and he could rest in the fact, in fact, he could give thanks to God as he was being hung there. Lord, this is all of you. I'm not cutting and running. You are doing it. You are doing all of this to the praise of Your glorious grace. So I say thank You. So I say thank You. Christian, You are being kept by a sovereign, gracious, able God. Trust Him. And in that trust, obey Him. Obey Him in faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray to You now that You would enable us, cause us to believe Your Gospel. There may be some today who do not know You here, who have not trusted You And I pray that you would cause those you have chosen to trust you. To trust you and to rest in you. Lord, I pray that you would cause these truths to dwell richly within us. That we would be a people. That I would be a person who lives to the praise of Your glorious grace. But I, I praise You for how You have set things up.
I praise you not only for your salvation, but how you are doing it. You are a great God. You are a glorious God. You are a faithful God. You will keep your promises to the end. We praise your name for it. And it is in your name that we pray and that we contemplate now. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.